0: Communication Studies podcast. My name is Justin Young. I am a faculty member here in the School of Communication Studies at Southern Illinois University. And this week, my guest is Dr. Todd Graham. Hi, Todd. Hi, how's it going? It's going well. How's it going for you? It's solid. Hey, this is my first time in the, in the podcast room. This is pretty cool. Yeah, we're uh, pretty excited about it. We got this finished over the summer, or half finished at least. We're still doing a little bit of work, but uh, we're pretty excited about it.
1: No, this is exciting for the department, because I've been here for 21 years, and I actually had to Google, where
0: is this today? So I (laughs) walked around to find it, this is awesome. I like it. This is great. All right. Uh, Well, uh, a brief introduction of Todd. Todd is the debate coach here for SIU, um, and a very accomplished debate coach, I should say, at that as well. So, uh, four time coach of the year recipient, uh, six time national champion, uh, your teams that you've coached, and then also a nine year run where you were one of the final four in the national, sorry, let me get the name correct, national championship debate tournament.
1: Yeah, so, so that's actually my favorite one. So imagine, like, if you're familiar with basketball and the NCAA, like March Madness. Sure. Most people are familiar with that. And so, you know, they have names for it. So it's like the Sweet 16, the Elite Eight, but then the Final Four, right? So the Final Four are set aside, and it's the last weekend. And so I just look at it that way. It's a really cool way to look at it, which is the teams at Southern Illinois University for nine consecutive years—now, that streak is has is, is ended now—but for nine consecutive years, we were in the Final Four— of a national championship, so think about like the March Madness basketball. Think about a, it's a university
0: that's in the Final Four for nine straight years.
1: So I think that's quite an accomplishment.
0: So you are the UCLA or Duke or Kentucky of debate. Yeah, what you're yeah, us. we
1: yeah we absolutely were. We 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 had that for quite some time. We had a really good run.
0: Well, that's uh, that's really impressive and everything. So we're going to talk about some of that. But before we get to that, uh, one of the things I want to talk to you about is how you even got here in the first place. So one of the things that uh, I've been particularly interested in is talking to people about How do you get into communication as a field to begin with? And I know as an undergrad, you actually studied broadcast communication. Broadcast communication. Yeah, I did. I have
1: three different degrees in communication. I have a a bachelor's in broadcasting. I have a master's in rhetoric, which is persuasion. And mm -hmm. then I have a PhD in interpersonal communication. So I've been there the whole time. Funny you ask how I got into it. Now, I know this probably isn't a a big way to sell it. But, you know, I was a goofy kid. I'm, you know, 18 years old and I'm a freshman in college and, I was on college for a debate scholarship, mm-hmm. and I thought no one told me any better. I thought that meant I had to be a communication major. So <laughs> I didn't even give any thought to what my major was. I thought that's what I had to do, and my debate coach didn't tell me any different. And so it wasn't until like a year or two years on, and, and, and they said, you know, you didn't have to be a comm major. And I'm like, oh, well, that's fine. I, I really like it. This is good. Right.
0: But, uh, but that's how I got into communication in the first place was I thought that was what I was supposed to do. So broadcast, were you thinking you might go into radio television or was it just that was the area you picked?
1: Well, I wasn't really sure at the time, you know, but but yeah, that sort of seemed a little bit more appealing to me. Oh, and because I went to my undergraduate was at Missouri Southern, and it was really a neat time at Missouri Southern, because while I was a freshman slash sophomore, they built a radio station that went out over the air, and they Mm -hmm. built a television station for Missouri Southern Television that I ended up working at, I worked shows at, I hosted some different programs, Uh, I eventually became operations manager, and then general manager by my senior year
0: so I, I really enjoyed it yeah so what were some of those shows that you were uh, participating in
1: oh goodness so uh i went back recently to visit uh judy styles who was uh, missouri southern she was in charge of the radio television uh and dr clark and they dr clark was retiring and judy styles just retired this year but i went back to see him with an old friend scooter who is a buddy of mine in college mm-hmm. and we went back a couple scooter of is ago. one of those classic old friend names yeah, right <laughs> i have two friends by the way from college and they are scooter and chip you just can't make that <laughs> up that's just so Did, are you in American Graffiti by yeah. any chance? <laughs> so, so Scooter and I go back to visit because he still lives in the southern Missouri region and we go back to visit uh, and they were talking about how they still had some of the old tapes because you know we used to record them on like VHS tapes and of right. course they've all updated since then and so nothing's on those but um, they remembered some of my shows and, and Judy Stiles still said to this day Todd we still haven't had really anybody like you because I got kicked off of at least two different shows so I, 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 I had <laughs> (laughs) had a show and I got in trouble for it. And then I had another show and then I got in trouble for it. If you want to hear the stories, I could go into that.
0: Oh, sure. Yes. Let's hear them because I actually had a very similar experience in college. Did you really? Yes. Yes. All right. So one that was
1: pretty tame, it was Scooter and I, we were doing what was a version of Crossfire. Back at the time, Crossfire was a political show on television where they would like put guests in the Crossfire, et cetera. And Scooter and I thought, well, let's do that. And he was more politically astute than me at the time. Um, I didn't know that much about politics as an Undergraduate, because my parents were apolitical, so mm-hmm. I didn't really even know what a Democrat or a Republican was. Now Scooter, on the other hand, he was a diehard Democrat. So, um, not just diehard, but like from the the sixth grade on, he was attending city council meetings of Web City, which is right near Joplin. That's where he. Oh lived. wow! He was attending them. He legally changed his name. By the time I met him, his name is John Scott Turner, but he goes by Scooter. So he changed it to John Scott Scooter. Harry S. Truman Turner. (laughs) <laughs> I, and so, so he, that gives you an idea. He's a very, he die in the old Democrat. And right. so, uh, so he and I hosted this crossfire program, which he knew way more about every political topic came up. I remember once we had like midterm elections or whatever, and I don't know what's happening in Colorado or anywhere else. And Scooter knew all of these candidates and I was like, oh, this is a close race. And so, right. But we did that a few times. And, and eventually I think, uh, we, uh, in part of this sort of, it was called opposing viewpoints, but mm-hmm. we got in trouble because our library at the university at Missouri Southern had been broken into. And so it got broken into. And then at the exact same time, like two nights later, it was broken into. And then two nights later, at the exact same time, it was broken into. And so Scooter and I made that one of our sort of... points on opposing viewpoints. Mm. And we just railed on campus security. We're just like, how how bad is this that they're breaking in at the same time every night and our campus security can't dope-de-dope find their way around? <laughs> so we got kicked off the air for that one. And then the other show that I got canceled was my comedy show. So I had a comedy show that was called After Hours, And so I was a big, when I was growing up, you were just, you were like a, you were, you either were or you weren't, but I was a Letterman fan. So Uh, I was a huge David Letterman fan. And so, uh, you know, when I I debated for the university, I actually used to wear wrestling shoes to the debate tournament with my, you know, odd looking colored suits that I would wear because David Letterman used to wear wrestling shoes when he would come on way back in the day. And mm -hmm. so I, I remembered I wanted to have a show like that. So I had a comedy show and it was pretty cool. We actually did the first live show ever at Missouri Southern, like we got every, Everybody coming come in and work, and I had a live show, and I had a guest. It was really exciting. But I got in trouble for a segment that I had running on three shows in a row that was called uh, Places You're Not Supposed to Go. And so uh, we we got in trouble because well, actually the one we didn't get in trouble for, believe it or not, we didn't get kicked off was I actually kind of busted into the chancellor's office. So what happened was we got the camera, we go in, we said, "Hey, is the chancellor here?" To his secretary, and she says, "I, oh, he's the minister's assistant." She said, "No," and we said, "Do you mind if we go in?" And for whatever reason, she said, "Sure, go on in." So we went into his office with the camera, and on his desk was like the new budget that no one had seen, and all these other things, and we were just filming everything, and we put that on. So that was one the second one was we we broke into when i was an undergraduate for for the segment of after hours places you're not supposed to go was our football field um we had the first missouri southern had the first astroturf in all of missouri so uh, okay. And so they guarded this thing like it was Fort Knox. And so uh, I remember Steve, who was my buddy, who was a cameraman at the time, really a tall guy, um, he and I had to jump the fence. So it's the middle of the because this thing is locked up, right? But it's the middle of the day, and it was locked up. We had to jump the fence. We had to throw the camera over. Now, all this is running. We have the camera on at the time. So <laughs> the camera's getting thrown over the fence. We're and so we just kind of wandered down to the field. And I remember there was a little high jump set up that I pretended like I tried to do and I totally failed. And so that was a really fun one too. But the one we got in trouble for was we went to the local like ABC or CBS, whatever, with the local, uh, you know, news station. So the local Joplin news station, and we walked in their door with our own camera, and they're like, "Hey!" And a couple of them kind of knew me, um, and they're like, "Todd, you can't come in here with that camera." And I'm like, "Well, we're doing that anyway." And we barged into the control room, and so like they're like, oh, you can't, you can't show this." And I'm like, "What? This technology is not new. This is Joplin, Missouri. We're not showing anything. This isn't stuff the Russians that want, you know, the, your <laughs> secrets." But by the time we got back to Missouri Southern. The department chair, the dean, and campus security were all waiting for us. And so that was the end of that show. So that was the last <laughs> show that I got to host.
0: Wow, that sounds like uh, very fun and eventful times and everything. Oh, it was it was fantastic. What was your story? What did, what did you do? Well, it, it, you know, I think if you're not ruffling some feathers when you're in college doing television, you're probably not doing something <laughs> right. Um, we got in trouble... The one that I think that really got us in trouble was a cartoon that we did, critical of some of the university's policies. Um, And so very similar to you talking about the breaking in and everything. Um, So we had one episode, the student newspaper had uh, been stolen one day. They had actually um, run a story about... An incident that happened at, I I believe it was one of the fraternities, some criminal incident that happened at one of the fraternities. And it was on the front page of the newspaper. It so happened that that issue came out on a big visit day for the university. And suddenly the newspaper disappeared all over campus. You could not find it. And so the university uh, blamed some student workers that they had acted entirely on their own and went out and stolen the newspaper all over campus. And nobody believed that. Nobody believed some student workers took this upon themselves. This was something that an administrator had ordered and then blamed the student workers because what's going to happen to student workers in that situation? Um, So we did a cartoon where we basically made the argument that the university had stolen it now, we didn't say our university. It was our fictitious university okay. in the cartoon right. and everything. Uh, but they didn't like that. <laughs> they didn't like that um, we depicted one of the administrators. Um, his name was Brockway, and mm-hmm. we uh, had him as uh, Broccoli. And so he was <laughs> actually a stalk of broccoli that walked around and talked, and they weren't very fond of that. And so those were the things that we mostly got in trouble for. I actually... Um, did a similar show, kind of like you were talking about Crossfire. Politically Incorrect was the popular show when I was in college. Um, And so I did a show very similar to that. And we never got pulled for that show, but we did get some emails and everything with people very upset about things that got said on that show. So... You
1: know, I'll be darned. Yeah. It's uh, the one thing that I discovered in doing all the shows is they would let you make fun of most people. But once you started to do something about the university, then they, right. they got a little bit upset. Like on my comedy show, I made fun of the mayor of Joplin in almost every episode. And sure. then I actually paid for a friend who owned a, uh, he owned a photography studio to gi- make a giant blown up, like a photograph, like a giant poster uh, of, the, of the mayor. And I always had that in the background somewhere I would go to on the show <laughs> And so we would talk about that. Um, I know, I remember the other time I got in trouble, you, you spoke of the news, newspaper. Uh, like here we've got the Daily Egyptian, which is a wonderful right. paper. But, uh, at our school we had the chart. Um, and I remember Chad Stebbins, who just recently retired, he was in charge of the chart. Um, and they were interviewing me for whatever reason. They were just interviewing me about debate or whatever because uh, I was an undergraduate. And I, I made a joke. And my joke was, "It's," I said that something, whatever I was talking about, was more interesting than a Gail Renner Lecture now. Gail Renner, may rest in peace. was a very, very old uh, professor in the history department, um, and everybody just knew he was one of the more, let's just say, non interesting uh, teachers. He was, he was, you know, he was fairly boring. Uh, right. And so, and so, I'm sure he was a fine teacher. But when you're an undergraduate, right, you hear all these things. And so, I said he's more. I said it's more interesting. I was talking about one of my shows. I said it's more interesting than a Gail Renner lecture, and and they they published that. And oh my goodness, Chad Stebbins got in trouble. And he was like the, you know, he was in charge of it. I got in trouble. I had to go apologize to Gail Renner and the chairman of the history department. Oh, wow. So, so yeah, it was, uh, yeah. you can't say much bad about the university and in, India. You know, otherwise they, they pull back.
0: Yeah, we got in trouble one time for a comic strip in which we had an English professor as one of the candidates for running for the new president of the university. Um, and we had some joke about him in it and they said, no, you cannot do that. This is libelous. You cannot put this in here. And so our solution to that was to put like a, um, like a Robin from Batman Robin, like a little tie mask over his eyes. And then for his name, we just put poorly disguised English professor. (laughs) And so then everybody paid a lot more attention to it than they did when we actually had his name on there. And we Mm -hmm. weren't even making fun of him badly or anything. Like like, he would have found it very funny. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think if you're doing college media and you're not ruffling a few feathers, like I said, I don't think you're quite doing it right. Yeah, I I think that's fantastic. And I
1: actually really enjoy working here with the media we've got. So, you know, whether it's the river region or or other things. And so I I really like seeing them. I remember I was uh, downstairs doing one of the sort of WSAU sort of television, you know, how they have television news and they, and they, they practice that downstairs. And so right. I was in the communication building downstairs and they were interviewing me about the presidential debates a couple years back. And and the poor, you know, the, 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 I think it was probably a freshman, but the kid who was interviewing me was really nervous. And I'm just like, <laughs> I've done this a million times. So I'm just like, it's fine. It's going to be okay. But then in the middle of his interview, the entire set fell. Just crashed.
0: Like the back yeah. drop?
1: Yeah, just crashed behind us. Um, and he just pretended like it didn't happen. And he was really nervous. And I'm just like, that's okay. We can laugh at that. You know, we, we can. So, right. So,
0: yeah, um, we, we
1: have some good stuff here at, at SIU.
0: It wasn't one of those Buster Keaton moments, like it fell around you? No, like you fell no, the it just fell. No, we were good. Okay. It
1: didn't fall through the window, but that's pretty funny. <laughs>
0: That would be amazing if yeah. that happened. <laughs> good, that's good. Good placement. Yeah, that is. good placement. Um, that's one of those things you don't think about when you're building the set. Like, if it falls, is it going to hit? Which anyone? direction will it like, fall? Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So obviously, you did undergrad doing a lot of broadcasting, um, and then you go on and get your masters and get your PhD. Um, and your PhD in particular is about interpersonal communication. Um, and I kind of wanted to talk to you about one of the areas of research. So both your master's thesis and then your PhD dissertation, both center around humor. That's correct. Um, and particularly your master's, uh, talked about Andrew Dice Clay that kind of maybe dates it. (laughs) It does date it a little bit, doesn't it? Um, and then your master, your PhD was more kind of generalized using humor in conversation and everything. Um. So I wonder, you know, you said you don't do as much research on that uh, now as you did at one point and everything, but uh, that's always an interesting subject. When I talk to students and when I've taught public speaking and things like that in the past, that's always a, a point of contention because everybody wants to get up and tr- – or some students want to get up and try to be a stand-up comic, right? Yep. Yep. And there are always the inherent pitfalls in that. You know, everything from the obvious, they're not actually Funny. funny. Um, But then also as, you know, potentially being offensive and everything. So what are kind of the lessons that you've learned over the years, both from your research, but also from all the work that you've done with debate and everything when it comes to using humor in speech? And like, what are some of the like tips that you might give the listeners?
1: Well, I find humor is actually, it was for my debate team here at SAU. I've I've found that humor was one of the more difficult things to coach Mm -hmm. because you're either kind of, you understand the timing, you understand it or not, because I would give them, I remember once, uh, probably a decade ago, we, we had uh, the national champions, from uh, from Ireland, come debate. So we, you know, we, they 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 tour the country, and so we were one of the stops. We paid for them to come here and visit etc. So we had them. And so it's a different style and format of debate, but it's pretty straightforward. And so we were, but it, because it's public speaking, and we're not usually used to having a big audience, you know. And I think we had like three hundred people show up for that. And oh, so wow. so uh, we, you know, I had my three debaters because it was three on three. It was a little bit different thing. So we were practicing humor because we knew the Irish kids were going to be just really funny. They're very good. They're very smart, but they're very funny and Mm -hmm. so we've we've written these jokes all the assistant coaches and i were working on jokes all week so we're working on and and I just I realized that you just can't give somebody a joke sometimes because they don't have the timing right. I mean, they would practice the joke six, seven times in front of me, and I'm like, no, you blew it again. That's not where you hit the punch, you know. And so right. we finally had to just work with their own personality. So the first thing I've learned about humor is you have to make your style of humor fit the personality of the, the person who it is. So maybe it's more self-depreciating, maybe it's others. So we find a we found a really good way here at SIU. We like our first debater went up, and he's like. Like just make me the punching bag, you know? And so that's one of the things is we, instead of making fun of the Irish, see the Irish would come in and they could make fun of us and people would laugh, but right. if we made fun of them. It made it seem like we were rude hosts. So the first thing I taught us is we don't make fun of them. We only make fun of ourselves. So you make fun of other speakers on our team or us or, and so that's kind of one of the things, but humor is really, believe it or not, it's difficult to teach sort of how to be funny because it's sure. like most things. It's, it requires practice. It requires timing. It requires a, a lot of that. But what I've, found in in sort of my research is in, in interpersonal communication, especially, is that uh, if you if you have too much humor too soon, it's one of the things I teach my class. In a relationship, that can be a little dangerous, only because you don't know like what the other person's sense of humor is, and you've kind of got to try to feel that out. So you might want to kind of hold back a little bit uh, at the beginning of a relationship. But also, humor is a really good way. Like on the on the inverse of that, it's a really good way to find out if your personalities match. Right. So right. You, you know right away if your personalities match if you have similar styles of humor and. I, I've made arguments for a long time that a similar style of humor is perhaps one of the more important traits in two people getting along, right? So we have a lot of similarity traits, whether we belong to the same fraternity, same sorority, we're the same race, same sex, et cetera. But, but I've made arguments that the similar senses of humor are one of the things that keeps your friends tight to you is because you kind of enjoy each other's humor. And, and there was a kid in my, you know, in my PhD program, Mike who was a friend of mine, but I always thought he had a just a terrible sense of humor. He told bad jokes, nobody ever laughed at him, et cetera. And so he, while he and I got along, we were never really going to be tight because I just always thought, oh, you know, Mike's not that smart because his jokes aren't that funny. <laughs> but on the other hand, he probably thought I wasn't that smart because I never laughed at his jokes. So, right. so
0: yeah, I, humor is a tricky thing like that. I don't know. What's your
1: experience with it?
0: Oh, I mean, I, I think definitely that um, the same experience of that you know, certainly when you're trying to teach humor and using humor in, say, a speech class or something, um, some people just can't use it. You know, and they may actually be a very funny person, but they're not good at delivering it. Right, 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 um, for whatever reason. So, like, you know, as I tell people, sometimes when people find out I've done work you know, writing humor and stuff that was like, Oh, well tell me a joke. And I'm like, I'm terrible at telling jokes. Like I hate telling jokes. Like, you know, you can write me 20 jokes and I'm going to be like, I I really don't want to tell any of these Um, but I'm much better in a conversation, like responding to someone and, you know, hopefully saying something humorous on like more off the cuff in those sorts of situations. Yeah.
1: And and it just depends on if the people get your sense of humor as well. Um, I've had debaters on this team that I've known after like one year and national champions. That I'm just like, i who just recently got married and I went to his wedding. I, I never even attempted to make Ben funny because Ben just, wasn't. That wasn't his personality style. That wasn't him in a debate round. But I had other debaters like Mike, uh, Mike Selk, who was, I, I, and Kyle Dennis, very funny. They were, Kyle, you didn't have coach at all. He just had a really good sense of humor. Sure. Mike, though, if you've ever noticed uh, the in humor, especially interpersonally, there's a fine line between funny and mean. Sure, And so uh, Mike would tell a joke to start one of his speeches in debate. Maybe it's a semifinal round. And he would say something about the other team. But it depends, It's here's the fine line. The fine line is simply in the tone in your voice. Mm-hmm. Mike would say it too aggressively because he was all excited and he was ready to give a speech. And so he would have a little shot at the other team, but it would just come off as mean and rude, and he was a jerk. And so I had to tell him, like, Mike, your jokes just aren't working. You're setting them up, but then you're saying them like you're angry. And right. so and so, a, a, a little bit of it is that. And, you know, still to this day, we struggle with it, right? So, I, you know, we'll talk about later my CNN columns, but one of the main problems I ever have there is I usually put about 10 jokes into those, and my editor usually cuts out every single one. And so... <laughs> (laughs) And so we have a running fight after all the the presidential debates about, okay, come on, leave these in. And so there are a couple editors I like more than the others because they get my sense of humor. But you can just tell when somebody doesn't get it because they just scratch out and they're like, I'm like, no, I was hysterical. I set that joke up with the line before
0: I did this. And so some people, it's just very, very hard. Well, while we're on this topic and everything, I don't know if you've been following the whole kind of... PR nightmare going on with Netflix right now with Dave Chappelle's comedy show. I have. Um, And so the PR nightmare isn't even entirely about the show itself, but more the response that uh, Netflix has given like multiple responses. And each one has been more tone deaf than the last it feels like. Um, But that is something that I think a lot of people are really interested in right now is, you know, we seem to be in a, and I think this is, this is maybe slightly misleading, but we seem to be in an era where we're changing what is acceptable in humor. Yeah, we are. And we're talking a whole lot more about, you know, um, the concept of punching down. Yeah, I was yeah.
1: just going to mention that. There's, I mean, there's a couple of just cardinal rules in humor, and one is you don't punch down. And for those people listening who who, who might not be aware of that concept, it basically means you don't make fun of people who have less power than you, or right. less power than those you know uh, above them, et cetera. So because that's just not funny. They already don't have power, et cetera. So that and that's that that would be an instance of the Dave Chappelle show, uh, you know, of his Netflix special is you know he was punching down against transgender folks, mm-hmm. uh, and, and it's also just right right? They're easy targets. And so because they don't have as much power as you. And so that's one of the problems of that. And that's what I wrote about in my dissertation is inappropriate humor. What, Mm -hmm. what humor do people find inappropriate? And pretty much, you know, it depends a lot of times, you know, um, people told me that the, 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 you know, it might be sexual, it might be, um, it might be racial, uh, it might be gender-based. Um, they aren't always inappropriate, though. And what people generally told me is it depends on the intent. If you think the intent of the person is like, you know, going along, etc. And so that's a tricky one. It's like the Supreme Court decision on pornography in the 1960s, which is, uh, we, we can't define it for you, but we know it when we see it. Right, right. Well, and it's the same thing with humor. Um, I think, and because Dave Chappelle, one of his, his responses is, you know, I had a a transgender friend, and 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 she thought it was okay, and so I'm sure it's fine. Well, one of the problems is that, um, which is by the way, just a horrible answer, um, because that's right. the whole "I can't be racist because one of my best friends is black" sort of a thing. Right. And so you can't say, I just as a tip to anyone listening, don't ever, when you're accused of something, saying "I can't be that because I have a friend who's that." That just doesn't work. No one ever buys it. It sounds horrible. But but I think the the Chappelle problem was that people felt like it didn't come from a place. Of love, right? They didn't feel like he was being like part of, they thought he was really picking on the transgender community and he was punching down. But if they would have thought perhaps his intent or if it came from a transgender comedian, et cetera, if they thought the intent wasn't as negative, then they probably would have found it funny. It's weird, but I talked to like 80 people for my dissertation and they all said the same thing. Intent was important across the board. They would say like, if we heard a race joke or a sex joke, et cetera, We won't laugh at it if we think the intent might be mean or demeaning, but we will laugh at some of them, maybe even the same joke, if we don't. And so it's a really interesting thing. People sort of have a fine line in their own sort of schemata about how they look at jokes, and they try to figure out when it's acceptable to laugh and when it's not acceptable to laugh, and that's kind of what the debate is that we're having right now.
0: And that difficulty is, you know, sometimes people don't realize that they're intent is not coming across yeah. in what they're saying, right? Yeah. Like their intent may be, oh, I'm not trying to be mean, but the audience doesn't know that. Like it, they're not conveying that clearly. Right,
1: right. And, and I'll be real honest with you. I was, uh, we went to, I I, I love going to see stand up comedians. And so uh, my partner Christopher and I went, when we were in Vegas, uh, you know, uh, a few years back, we actually, I, Christopher thought this was a terrible idea. So I did this without telling him. <laughs> I'm like, I bought tickets to Carrot Top.
0: And oh, he's i like, have seen
1: Carrot Top in Vegas. He's hysterical. He's great. He's hysterical. It's and, like the best show you'll see. I know. And so Christopher didn't believe it because he gets made fun of by other comedians, right? So other, sure. like other comedians, think you know he's cheating because he's a prop comic and he's you know, but he's funny. And so if you go to see, so I bought Christopher tickets to that, and that was a good one. But unfortunately, the the other one we went to was John Lovett's was doing uh he was on it with Dana Carvey, two former Saturday Night Live they had stand-up together. We went to that. Right. Dana Carvey's fine. He used to be a stand-up comedian, so he knows how to do this. But John Lovett never was. And so all of his all of his jokes were like at least half of them were either against gay people or against transgender. And Christopher and I just couldn't mm-hmm. stand it because we're sitting there feeling like he's talking about us. You right. know? And so that's part of the problem. He clearly wasn't doing it from a place of, you know, he was doing it from, this is an easy joke, drunk people in Vegas will laugh at this because it, you know, the superiority theory of humor says that we laugh at things because we feel better than them. It makes us feel superior to those who are infirm. That's an old Thomas Hobbes 1651 theory started with superiority theory. But, and that's what we felt like. We felt like we were getting picked on. And so we were there with another couple, uh, you know, Aaron and his wife, Batia, and they were just like, we wanted to walk out, but we didn't. Know what to do, and we said we wanted to walk out, but we thought you wanted to stay. Right. And so, but
0: Dana Carvey was fine, but John Lovitz was 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 mean and hateful. We thought, and
1: so yeah, that does make a difference.
0: Yeah, and you know, um, I think that's always an issue that students run into about you know, and you hear these complaints. Well, why can he do that joke and I can't do that joke? And the obvious answer is he can do that because he's part of that group, community. Yeah, he's right? part of the community. Um, you know, I I have. A, visual uh disability and so sometimes i'll make jokes about being visually disabled sure. and you know my friends and family will laugh but if i ever make those jokes around people who don't know me and obviously it's an invisible disability somebody just meeting me would not know it but i have made those jokes before when other people are around they're like oh my god how could you possibly say that about blind people and i'm like well you know i, I kind of feel i can get away with it a, a bit because this is something that I'm dealing with. Right, um,
1: right. And it's the same thing with like, you know, I, when I teach my interpersonal class, um, you know, I mean, I'll tell you a story that I haven't actually probably t- told very much, probably never here at SIU uh, for my first, I don't know. So I got the job here in 2000. And for my first, I don't know, seven or eight years, I taught interpersonal, and you have to use a lot of examples about your relationship and interpersonal. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I've been with Christopher since since two thousand one, and so, uh, you know, I would just say my partner, happy anniversary, it's oh, twenty you. years. Well, twenty years, just yeah. a month ago, we had our twenty year anniversary, oh, wow. and so yeah, it's fantastic. Um, so, uh, so yeah, twenty years is a long time. That's really good. But <laughs> but Christopher, I, I would never use his name. I would just say my partner, and I also wouldn't say a pronoun of he. It's because it was it was the remember think in 2001 2002 2003 here at SIU and I just didn't know if the students would be accepting right. so for all those years I was and I would tell all these stories about my partner but I would never say a name mm-hmm. and so I just assumed I'm like well the students probably know that I'm gay but I wouldn't make it a thing right and so because I didn't know how it would be accepted at the time right so we're still being rejected by people like Christopher's father you know that, you know and so it's still I wasn't sure if they were ready for it and finally I just asked one of my debaters and I just said because my debaters know everything about me right and so they all met Christopher and they've been to my house in St. Louis. And so I just asked him and, and when Cameron graduated in like 2005 or whatever, he's just like, Todd, they're ready for it. You can, you can, you can say his name. And so right. since then I've just been like, yeah, my partner Christopher. And I talked, I talked about him yesterday in class for probably 15 minutes, you know, um, because that's, you know, an example. And so, so then I can tell some jokes occasionally. So I can have like, you know, you know, Christopher who's super gay. Cause I call him super gay sometimes because uh, I, and, and if, but if class didn't know I was gay, I couldn't right. call, him super gay. You know, if he was just some random person yeah, you were yeah, talking exactly, about. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, and so I, I found that, you know, they have to know you're part of that. They have to know that you're part of it if you want to joke about anything like that, or they have to know that it comes from a, a good place. But yeah, for the first. Five, six years here. here was a funny story from one of the classes downstairs. I remember teaching one day, I was teaching downstairs, and I said, to "My partner, and this is before, you know, I'd, I'd ever told classes I was gay. Right. And one of the students raised his hand and said, "Well, you know, when she does that, do you believe blah, blah, blah? And so I just answered the question. 10 minutes later, somebody else asked a question. And they said, well, when he does that, do you think he blah, blah, blah? (laughs) And I just answered that question too. And so I clearly one of them was wrong. But I I didn't open up and tell them at the time. But I went back and I called Christopher and I'm like, oh, guess what just happened? And so it was pretty funny.
0: Yeah, uh, we were, you know, we were talking about that maybe a month, two months ago, about how people interviewing now often use the term partner to Mm -hmm. describe who they're with. Mm -hmm. And that that used to be a term that was used primarily uh, by homosexual people to, to describe their partner instead of saying, my spouse, my husband, my wife. Um, but now lots of straight people use that term. Yeah. And
1: that's really cool. And, and there's an excellent example when I was getting my PhD at Arizona state. And so I was buried in the closet at the time. So, um, so I was getting my PhD at Arizona state and one of the fellow cohorts of a PhD student, she kept talking about her partner. Well, you know, when we go, she was having a little Halloween party and you'll get to meet my partner. And that's, she'd always called my partner Mm -hmm. and we got there and it turns out it was her husband. Right. And we were all just like, we were like, oh, we thought you were gay. Uh, and so because she always called her
0: husband her partner. But now that's way more common to just say, you know, my partner. Right. We, uh, at a previous job, um, we hired a woman. And throughout her entire interview, she kept referring to her partner. And so after we had decided we were going to hire and everything, one of the women in the department asked me, do you think she's gay? Because she kept saying partner. And I said, I don't I don't know. Maybe like I you know, I didn't really think a whole lot about it. Years later, I told this woman that we hired that yes, we actually weren't sure if you were straight or gay. And she said why? And I said, well, you kept using the term partner. And she said, I didn't even think about it the entire time I was using it.
1: And this is a neat thing for communication study students, I think too, because uh, one of the things that I'm able to note that like Christopher might not notice or other people might not is I pay so close attention to language. Now Mm -hmm. it's not just because I'm a communication uh, teacher, but it's also because I'm a debate coach. And I know the difference between words, just one sentence can make the difference between winning a debate and losing a debate. And I have a famous example of that, which is that my team lost a round one time where they said that the other team fell for our trick, right? And they did. And, And so, but the judge voted against us because the judge thought we were too deceptive. The very next time we ran the same argument, we simply changed that one sentence and we said, they stepped into our trap. And we won that debate because then the judge could act like they knew it, they were part. But the difference between fell for our trick and stepped into our trap makes it like they were more active. They stepped into a trap that we'd set up versus fell for a trick makes it seem deceiving. So little things like that, you notice as a like you know as a researcher and obviously I have a master's in rhetoric, but I, I think that's really neat. So yesterday this just came up. So one of our favorite shows to watch is American Greed. Uh, I I know this sounds ridiculous. The CNBC show, yeah. But Stacey Keach is really funny. He does the background and he's like, uh, so somebody's like, I swear I didn't do it 120%. And then Stacey Keach in the background will go, a hundred and twenty percent And so, but it's, it's really funny. So, um, we're watching the show and it was about Ray Nagin, who is the, uh, the, the mayor of New Orleans, who's currently in jail. Mm-hmm. So, um, so for, for corruption and stuff. And he said one thing toward the end of the show, like, cause they had him talking after like the jury had said guilty and everybody said guilty. He said, you know, I still maintain my innocence and I had to hit pause. And I said, he just said he was guilty. And Christopher's like, what? And I'm like, you got to pay attention to the language. Would an innocent person ever say, I still maintain my innocence? Because the first part of that is still maintain indicates maybe you won't maintain your innocence at some point, indicates maybe it's pliable or movable, right? That thing that I still maintain my innocence, you say that about other people that you're not sure about. You don't say that about yourself. I would never say, I still maintain my innocence. I would say, I'm innocent, right? right? And so when he said, I still maintain my innocence, I hit pause. And went, oh, he's guilty. Like if I was on a jury, that's all I would have needed to hear because we use particular language choices to mean certain things. And and that to me was just a dead giveaway that he was playing a game that he was maintaining innocence, but that he knew he was guilty.
0: He's speaking in legalese. Is yeah. Well, you know, most people would say. Yeah. 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 But
1: he's speaking in legalese about his first person. Right. And you just wouldn't do that, right? If you didn't commit a murder. There's another famous one where somebody, like, somebody killed it. And he goes, well, there's only... So he was convicted of murder on the show or whatever we were watching. And it was like a Dateline type of show or sure. whatever. And uh, I had to pause that one for Christopher, too, because he said, well, there's... A, 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 there's only two people that know the truth, and unfortunately, you know she's she's dead, and he'd already been convicted. You know, so it was you know he killed a woman, um, and he said unfortunately she's dead, and I hit pause, and I went nope guilty, and Chris was like why? I said if you didn't do it, there's three people who know you didn't do it. The dead person, you, and the person who did it. So when he said there's only two people who know this, and unfortunately she's dead, I'm like, guilty. <laughs> so, right. So you've got to watch. I just, I find that fascinating about communication. If you really pay close attention, there's giveaways everywhere. It's also why I'm a terrible liar. I just think I'm a terrible liar because I've taught Christopher enough of this that I can't even try to lie to him anymore because he can spot things right away that I've said. That I'm just bad at lying. But, but yeah, it's, it's neat. When, when we study this, you can just little changes like that. And in coaching a debate team, you listen for little things like that that are just giveaways.
0: Well, I think you become more self-conscious of your language when you teach this and you're in it every day, you start thinking about your word choice more.
1: You do. You do. And, and this was, a, this is a, sort of a little, a, a battle we've occasionally had is, is one time we were having a little argument and Christopher told me, he said, well, Todd, you know, I feel like I always have to watch what I say around you. And I looked at him and I said, that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing to watch what you say. I think it's a good thing to be careful with your language choices because I've right. had to be careful with mine for thirty years, you know. So, I, yeah, you do. You you notice that more if you're if you're in communication.
0: Well, let's talk about one of those areas that you have to be very careful in your language, which is debate. Um, and so we kind of uh, teased it a little at the top, and we've you know kept coming back around to it and everything. But you are the debate coach here, and so one of the things I wanted to Give you the opportunity to enlighten us is to explain exactly what is competitive debate because i think most people are familiar with debate from presidential debates right that's what most people think of, but that's a very different format than the competitive format. That's true. That's um, true. So what is a competitive debate when you're coaching? What does that actually look
1: like? Well, it can look from either one versus one. So it's one one debater versus one. The most common is two uh, people on a team. So it's two versus two in a debate. Um, but now we're actually in an in, uh, a form of debate that's called world-style debate, British parliamentary debate, and it's actually... It's eight people in the debate. So Not you're one. a team of two still. So Southern Illinois will have a team of two. But we're on, like, there are two sides to the debate, those for the topic and those against the topic. And so there'll be two teams arguing for the topic, two teams arguing against the topic. Um, that's a fairly newer form of debate. It's really large right now. It's across the world, et cetera. But typical debates are just you get a topic, one team, but you at one team goes, like, on for the topic, and one team has to argue against the topic. Um, you do uh, some styles of debate uh, because e- debate is never cordoned off like, uh, like a sports is, which is like big schools have one conference, smaller schools have one conference. And so I try to teach people that right away, though it's all one. So there's no mid-majors. There, or there's anything. no mid-majors or anything like that. But the difference is there are different styles of debate just because some people prefer to debate in different styles. So we might not be in the same uh, sort of uh, competitive league as, let's say, uh, you know, uh, you know, a Yale, if Yale is doing one style of debate and we're doing a different style because, mm-hmm. you know, a debate coaches kind of change and they go with the flow like British Parliamentary, which is a big sale now all the top universities in the world do it. But you know, 10 years ago, not very many of them did it, you know, not as many of them did it. And so that that changes uh, based off because people always say, well, did you beat Harvard this week or whatever? And sometimes I say, well, Harvard's in a different but we did beat a different Ivy League because they're in, you know, they do the debate that we do. So at Southern Illinois, we've always tried to do whatever's the largest form of debate. Typically, it's called policy debate. Uh, and then it became sort of parliamentary debate. Um, but the big difference differences In, in policy debate, you might have one topic for the whole year. Mm -hmm. Um, And at each tournament, you'll have like six debates. You have to go three times for the topic, three times against the topic, et cetera. Uh, But that topic is so large, there are lots of subsets within it. So you just keep researching and researching the same topic. Whereas the style of debate we do now, a parliamentary style debate, you get a different topic every round. It's announced to the entire tournament. So you show up at a tournament. Let's say we go up to Loyola in Chicago, Uh, you know, Dave Robinelli up at Loyola, because we have a tournament this weekend online, actually. Uh, And so they'll announce the topic, and then you get 15 minutes to talk to your partner or whatever. Whatever, about anything that you need to, to know about that topic. But they tell you what side you're on and who your judges are, um, and then they tell you the topic, and then you've got to go. So basically, you have 15 minutes to get ready for any kind of topic. It could be national, it can be international, it can be legal, it can be economic. And so you have to be much more well read in this particular form of debate, because there's only so much that I can help them with in the preparation, etc. in 15 minutes, they have to know a little bit about Everything. And right. so I find that fascinating, this new form of debate that we've been doing for uh, quite some time. Uh, it's because I think the students are more well rounded. They, they have to read the news every day mm. in order to kind of, because if you only get 15 minutes and you don't know what it is, you know, we, we famously had a debate one time where um, we actually were debating at the World Championships and my team was really good, but had not debated in that style before. So my team's good, but, you know, we, we knew we weren't going to do well. It was a new style of debate. We were good debaters, but the topic came out, we had to go first. And that the topic was, South Africa should accelerate its land redistribution process. My team had never researched South Africa. They had no idea. And so we walked in, and the, the judge got there a little late. And she's like, well, I'm sorry to hold this up. You know, I hope I didn't waste anybody's time. And my, my first debater stood right up and said, well... If you think that was a waste of time, wait till you hear my speech. Uh, here's what I've figured out. Because we didn't, you we also were unable to use computers at the time. So it was just whatever you knew, you and your partner. Neither one of them knew anything and they weren't able to talk to me. And I knew a little bit. And so he said, just by the words in the topic, it says, South Africa should accelerate. So we will assume they're already doing this thing. Land redistribution we guess that means giving land back to you know native black folks because you know it's been taken over by white people in south africa this is post apartheid yeah that's exactly right it was post apartheid and so so they should accelerate their land redistribution he said and that's about all we know that's it <laughs> that was the end of his speech he was so proud because he thought he'd figured out what the topic meant but he didn't know anything about sure. it and so that's what this form of debate does to you it forces you to read about lots of stuff because otherwise you could
0: end up embarrassing yourself so, how do you coach that? I mean, obviously, you're coaching them to um, to read more and to like. You're probably providing news sources that they should be checking into and everything. Um, how do you how do you function as a coach in that? You know, beyond you know the teaching them the basic fundamentals yep. of of debate structure. What's going on at a tournament and everything that like you're doing as part of that?
1: Yeah, most of my coaching is actually argument coaching. It's not really coaching. And this is what one of the misnomers is about uh, debate or debate coach. They think, well, I'm just teaching techniques of debate, like how to speak better, et cetera. And that's very little of what I do, frankly. Sure. Uh, most of what I do is coaching on arguments on issues. So if the issue comes up, I will say, because, you know, I have to be real well read. And so we will talk about it briefly before the round. And I'll say they'll, they'll throw out some arguments that they want to make. And I'll say that not a very good argument. Here's a little bit better argument. Here's an even better argument. Here's why it's strong. And so what we do is we kind of map out the round. Um, The best way to describe what a debate coach does is uh, it's strategic. So... Like, if I had a whiteboard, it's like a football coach who draws up plays on the whiteboard and he says, Okay, the receiver is going to go here, the other receiver is going to go here. I do that for debate. So I say, Okay, our first argument is this. Our opponents only have two different directions they can go. If they say this as a response, and then I'll write it out, they say this, we have these three possible answers. If they say this as a response, we have these three. But that requires you to know a lot about the topic. And so part of what a coach does is a coach really needs to know a lot about it topic. And when I had graduate assistants here, we had really good sort of setup that the graduate assistants would give them some ideas. And then basically, I would be the one saying, okay, that's a good one. Let's do that. Let's expand that. Let's not that. So it really is based off what arguments do you think will will do better, et cetera. And a lot of communication is also who are you debating for? There have just been a lot of rounds where my debate teams have come out when they were freshmen and said, you know, how'd we do? We did everything that you've taught us. And I said, you're going to lose, you know, because the judge was in there thinking. And they're like, why are we going to lose? And I said, because I'm not your judge. You have to analyze your judge first. And so a lot of communication is who is my audience? And so in debate, believe it or not, when we have 15 minutes before a round and we get the topic, half of that time, half of that time, we don't even talk about the topic we talk about the judges. We're like, okay, this is a judge. We had this judge because we try to keep like either a file or a good memory of our judges. We had this judge three months ago. They judge us on this. They're a little bit more conservative, so we think they like conservative arguments, so we should focus on that. So we talk about our audience. And so when I talk to my speech classes here or other classes, I talk about how you always have to adapt to your audience. Just like in interpersonal communication, we don't communicate the same way with our professors, with our fellow students, with our roommates, with our parents, et cetera. You adapt your communication to be more effective to whoever you're communicating to. So this is what I would talk to my debaters about is this is what this judge likes. This is what this judge doesn't like. Let's make sure and make arguments that are in this judge's wheelhouse. And so we spend half of our time
0: doing that. So a lot of it is, you know, figuring out who that audience is and figuring out like how they're leaning and everything. So that's got to be, you know, that's got to be very difficult for students when they're doing this and everything to like start... Internalizing that of, you know, reading body language exactly and, and those sorts of cues.
1: Exactly. And here's the funniest part is because I've been doing this for so long, usually I'm judging at tournaments, but when I'm not judging, I sit at the back of the room and watch our own teams debate. So I'm the very back of the room. So all I can see is our teams debating and then the back of the judges' heads, right? Mm-hmm. Whoever's judging it, I always know if we've won or lost because just from seeing the back of them, I can tell from body language if they're liking our arguments or not. And I will watch them and I will watch our team, and occasionally I'll have to pull our team out after the round and go, you weren't paying attention to the judge. You went for an argument they didn't like. They liked this other argument you were making much better. Why didn't you watch them? And so from the back of the room, I can always tell that judge likes us or doesn't like us based on this or likes this argument or doesn't. And so part of it is that you've got to read your audience and then adapt to it. I've Mm -hmm. always said that when in advanced public speaking, you have to be able to adapt to however well you're going, right? If you see that the audience is like or isn't stay longer on one point, make one point better. Well, it's the same with debate. I tell my debaters, you've got to pay attention to the judges because at the end of the debate, you're going to have to make choices as to what arguments you think you now still want to continue on with in your rebuttal and what arguments you want to jettison and not keep debating. Um, But that's based off what you think the judge is buying and what they're not buying, what they like and what they don't like.
0: All right. Well, we mentioned when we were talking, when I was introducing about debates that the type of debate most people are familiar with is the sort of presidential debate. And really, even more than just the presidential debates, I think people watch a lot of the, um, you know, the Republican or Democratic debates, because that's where, you know, we end up with, in recent years, 15 people up on stage <laughs> trying to debate one another. Um, and, and that's more, you know, a lot of people have already decided. Once somebody gets the nomination, they know they're voting that way or, yes. an, or another. But, like, you may not know which of the 15 Republicans or Democrats you're voting for. Um, you actually, uh, and you mentioned this a little bit earlier, you, uh, you work with CNN on this. So you have appeared on CNN as well as lots of other television shows and networks, uh, sort of grading these debates and everything and also doing uh, uh, contributing pieces uh, where you go through after these debates and rate the performance of everyone. I was reading one of them last night, and you were saying my best advice is don't be Jeb Bush. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um. But like, what a what do you see that has changed over the years? So uh, you know, I used to talk a lot in class about uh, the Kennedy Nixon debate. Yeah. Very famous first televised debate and. Kennedy won in part or is given lots of credit for winning because he looked better on TV. That's correct. Even as something as simple as like he, he took makeup and wore makeup on t- TV and Nixon was sweaty and yep. looked uncomfortable and, 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 pale. and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, what has changed over the decades when we see presidential debates and everything? That's a fantastic question because most people think that it's static, Okay,
1: so pick your game, whatever your game is that you play, you watch, you enjoy. It doesn't have to be sports. It can be a sport, football, basketball, baseball, et cetera, but it can be whatever it is. I promise you that game has evolved. So I play poker. I like to play poker. I play Texas Hold'em. They don't play Texas Hold'em today like they did 15 years ago. That game has evolved so much. The the strategies are different. Everything is different. And if you don't keep up with it, like let's say I was a good player 12 years ago, um, that same style of play will lose all of my money today. So because the game evolves, right?
0: And in part, the game, specifically about poker, is evolved because we start broadcasting on television. That's exactly right. So people were watching and they were seeing it. And the same way with presidential debates, people see it every four years. And so if I'm going to run four years from now, I can see what works and what doesn't.
1: And those debates have evolved since then. My main complaint about the recent debates, I have a lot of complaints, but one of my main complaints is the Commission on Presidential Debates are the ones who kind of set up the debates and they're chaired by Frank Ferenkoff. But basically, they're a bunch of old political people. So like literally old, they're very, very old. And they still feel like we're debating because they don't have any debate experts. They're old political people or hacks or Democrats or Republicans or whatever, but they they don't have a single debate expert. They don't have a single person like me, who's, who's done debate their whole life, uh, on the commission on presidential debates. And so the rules that they've currently set up for presidential debates are still set like we're debating Nixon and Kennedy. Mm -hmm. Um, but debates aren't like that anymore. We've gotten much more combative in debates. We interrupt a little bit more in debates. And frankly, the moderator has a way harder job these days. And so one of the things that I've noticed is that the debates, especially any debate that's involved, Trump is just going to be more mean, more rude. I mean, that's just how, that's just how it is. That's how he, he, he is right. You mm-hmm. can't change him. So, in order to, I mean, I the worst debate of all time is the one that that Chris Wallace, you know, moderated this year was the first presidential debate between Trump and Biden, where Trump literally just interrupted and yelled at him for an hour and a half. Um, right. Uh, a famous quote that one of the the one of the people working in the Trump administration said on the way out is, um "Covid hurt Trump. Getting Covid hurt him when he got Covid, um, as far as like getting reelected, but didn't hurt him nearly as much as that first presidential debate where he just screamed at Joe Biden for no." reason for an hour and a half or yelled at him. And that was Trump's own people saying that. And mm-hmm. so one of the things is, is that the debate has evolved such that moderators need to be a more heavy hand they, because people just aren't as nice as Kennedy and Nixon back in the day. You can't just ask a question and expect them to do that. You've got to be involved in the debate. There's more lying that's happening in debate now, which is just a, a shame. And and, and and it it sickens me, but there's more just non-truth telling in debates, um, especially again, given that Trump was in the debates. He's a, He set the record for the most number of like false statements in debates, etc. But but moderators have to have to be able to like fact check that. Um, but they've found that fact checking it after the candidate says something doesn't work because the candidate's going to push back on you. So it has to be fact checked during the question. So you say something like, well, uh, you know, President Trump, two years ago, you stated this, and then you stated this, etc. So if you do that during the question, then you just can let them go a little bit better, uh, because you've already basically fact checked whatever they're about to say while you're doing the question. But if you do it afterwards, It seems like you're a partisan. It seems like you're unfair, uh, Uh et cetera. And so the other thing is that that like the debaters themselves, the candidates, whether it's Trump, whether it's Biden, whether it's Clinton, they've gotten better at sort of working the refs right? And so, you know how coaches always work the refs. That ah, wasn't a foul. You shouldn't call it. And maybe the refs let you get away with the next one. Well, uh, you know, it's not just Trump's team that did that. Everybody does it. But Trump's team is particularly good at working the moderators. Before the debate ever comes out, they're already saying, well, this moderator is not going to be fair toward us. This moderator is pro-Democrat, et cetera, et cetera. Because what they're trying to do is get the moderator to go a little bit lighter on them during the debate. It's a right. smart strategy. It's a strategy used in every game, right? I've used it as a debate coach. When we've had people that have like voted against us, You know, I've talked to him in private afterwards and I've kind of given him a little bit of the business and let him know, well, you know, because I'm working the refs. I'm not thinking about that debate. I'm thinking about the next time they judge us.
0: And when you mention sports with that, you're talking about like coaches after a game. So the basketball coach comes to the press conference and says, oh, the refs really killed us out there. They were, you know, they were showing a clear bias and everything. And the idea is not that the NBA is going to change the outcome of that game, it's that the refs will be more hesitant. The next game to call those fouls, right? So that um, you know it'll be more in their favor for the next game.
1: Little football joke here, but you want all of your refs to be like you are the New England Patriots, so because uh, <laughs> everybody always used to complain that New England always got all the calls, right? But, but yeah, that's what you want to do. You want to try to get it. And I think we see that. You've heard the term makeup call in basketball or in football or in baseball, right? right? And there's a makeup call here and there because they think they might have got one wrong, so they get it right. And so that's what you do in debates, right? So the political candidates are working the moderators. Before the debate ever starts, they're criticizing the moderator for stuff that hasn't happened yet, you know, because they want the moderator to take it a little bit lighter on their candidate.
0: Do you think that the Republicans have had an easier task with that because they have spent so much time saying the media is biased, the media is liberal and everything, that inherently any Anybody that they bring in as a moderator, unless they're from Fox News, let's say – that person but even Fox News um, uh, Chris Megan Kelly or Megan Kelly yeah Megan Kelly got really hit hard by Trump and everything that she was biased and Chris Wallace as, as well she
1: absolutely did did you know that Trump the uh, the one of the primaries he lost in 2016 was Iowa um, and that's and I actually made this statement at the time uh, I said this is gonna happen he's gonna lose this it's because he skipped the Iowa debate and I know a lot of times you're like oh there's 10 people in these debates and there's or 12 or 15 or whatever there's a lot of people in these debates and Uh, And I'm pretty sure it's Iowa, by the way. I'll have to double check that. I'm almost positive it was Iowa. Um, But the one debate he skipped, it was because he was angry. He was like a Megan Kelly or whatever. But he actually ended up not coming in first place in that primary because he skipped that particular debate. But you're absolutely right. Um, And they actually came out with the list this last year of potential moderators. And they were all far right wing commentators, right? And so you're right. They have an easier time at work in the refs because they've been saying media bias for forever. So whoever the media puts out there, they're going to say bias. I mean, Trump didn't even like Chris Wallace this year Um, and, and Chris. Wallace has been on Fox News and he's done debates before and he was really good. Frankly, in 2016, he was one of the better moderators. In 2020, he had the worst debate of all time. Uh, And it's partially because one of the things in debate is the moderators need training too. So he should have practiced. He should have seen that Trump was going to be a little bit more belligerent, interrupting, etc. But I think Chris Wallace slid on his reputation. He's like, listen, I handled this in 2016. I'll be fine in 2020. And he didn't realize the debates had changed that much since then. And so he just He couldn't handle that at
0: all. It was a really terrible time. One of the things that I see happen in debates sometimes is that somebody comes in just hammering the other candidate. You know, this person is incompetent. This, I feel like, happened with Biden, that Biden was depicted as, you know, old and incompetent and, like, maybe he was slightly even senile. And then when Joe Biden shows up and he does well in the debate... Like, he doesn't even have to do great. Yeah. He just has to do okay. Yeah, And, you know, and that was part of Trump in 2016, I feel like, is that people were like, he's a buffoon. And then when he would show up and do, you know— slightly t- above
1: buffoon, he would yeah. look great. Yeah. Donald Trump in 2016 did really well in the debates that had more than four people. Uh, because when you don't have as much speaking time, you're better at like getting little shots in, getting little things in, because you don't have to go into depth on the issue. Right. When he would get in trouble when it was just like two or three people in the debate. But I mean, Ted Cruz is a the senator from Texas who was running for president in 2016. It was a national champion collegiate debater. National champion. He went um, to
0: Harvard, right? Uh, yeah, he and,
1: went to Harvard and Yale. I think he has degrees from. The, it cracks me up because he talks about these elites all the time. That he has degree two degrees from Ivy League schools, <laughs> but um, but he got smoked by, by Donald Trump. Uh, and it was just because he wasn't used to what I call street debating. Donald Trump is going to throw out ad hominems. He's going to do these things. And Ted Cruz didn't know how to handle that. And so, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. People, Ted Cruz thought, Oh, I'll be able to beat Donald Trump. No problem. And then when Donald Trump would do things, Ted Cruz wasn't ready for, he just didn't know how to handle that. And so go Four years forward, unfortunately, that was one of the mistakes the Republicans were making in the debates pre-Biden. They were already setting the expectations too low for Biden. They were like, Biden doesn't know what he's doing. Biden's kind of senile. And right. I, and I, everybody I know who knows this is like, you should be doing the opposite, right? Um, because when you do that, and if all Joe Biden has to do is meet that low bar, people will think he won the debate. Just be, even if he didn't win, it's did he exceed his own expect your expectations of him? And if he did, therefore he won. It's one of the it's so one of the reasons why I think people like to interview me, why the C, Why I've been writing CNN columns for now you know, more than 10 years is, on, on debates is because I always draw analogies to my own teams. Right? Mm-hmm. And so even though people are like, well, competitive debate, it's nothing at all like presidential debate. Well, that's just not true. I Trust me, I do them both. So I know there are a ton of similarities. While they might not be the same in speaking style or the amount of evidence, in how you persuade people they are, and my own teams here at SIU when we had that great run, We were always expected to win every debate.
0: I was just about to ask that nine years had to hurt you in some ways. Very
1: much. There was never a debate we went into that we weren't expected to win. And so we would lose an occasional debate because the other team came close to us. Right. And the judges were just so impressed that they came close. So basically, if it was like close to a tie, the judges would be over impressed with the other team. And I would just be, and we might lose. And I would be like afterwards... Those weren't important arguments they were making, and so it would be a little frustrating. So it works for you sometimes, obviously because we have the reputation coming in. The judge thinks we're going to win, so in some ways it's really good, right? So mm-hmm. don't get me wrong; I think it helped us way more than it hurt us because in most rounds, if it was a tie, we'd win because they thought we were supposed to. But then there were other rounds where the team just beat their expectations, and so the judge would vote for. It. So I know for a fact that when Trump and, the, and, and 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 his team were saying like Biden was senile or incompetent, I'm like, all Biden's got to do is give a decent debate, and
0: then people will think he won. Right. Yeah. And that's what happened. I thought he was better in both those debates. So looking mm-hmm. forward to 2024, and I know in a lot of ways none of us want to even be thinking about that quite yet. Uh, but obviously discussion is already going on about certainly the midterms next year, but already for the presidential uh, election 2024. Um, you've talked about the the evolution of debates Um, obviously Trump in 2020 changed debates again, right? Right. They like sort of confrontational, just yelling at Joe Biden as you were mentioning everything. What do you think debates look like in 2024 and how dependent is that on if Trump runs or does whoever the Republican front runner, do they like mimic and copy that because it's been so successful for Trump?
1: Uh, That's a fine question. I think that Trump is unique in that he is still able to be funny. Trump is funny. Trump could be really funny sometimes. I mean, he does a Marco Rubio impression that just cracks me up every time.
0: I mean, there is a reason The Apprentice was a hit show. He was was entertaining. He's very entertaining. And
1: so, and I've written that in many columns that, that, you know, I think Trump can be really, really funny. But the problem is if if the candidate is not Trump in 2024, uh, there's a fine line. They have to, because if you're just going to be mean, that doesn't come across well. You have to also have that. So it's tricky. I think the candidate, I think not having Trump in the debates will make the debate better. But Trump might be in these debates. Who knows? If he runs again, et cetera. Uh, but, but the one thing is, I think the moderators need to be told beforehand, here's how you have to change this. Here's how you have to do sort of these debates or do follow-ups or, you know, here's how you have to handle it when, when these things happen. Because, you know, it's going to keep happening if the moderators don't get hold of the debates. Because right now, people are not seeing enough punishment. In the collegiate circuit, you get punished if you lie. Right. right, you cannot lie in a debate because people think debaters are the ones who maybe lie the prettiest. And so I had to do so many interviews. So I'm on Canadian television, I'm on the BBC, I'm on CNN, I'm on all of these radio networks, etc. And I have to explain this is not what debate is. Debate is about truth seeking. And so that's where we start. We start debate is a search for the truth. That's why we debate. Which policies are better? We kind of we air them out. We talk about them, and it's a search for the truth. And so in collegiate, high school debate, etc. If you Ever get caught lying, you will not only lose that round, but let's say you won that debate and then people later found out you were, you know, a couple of your arguments you just weren't truthful about, you lied about. It gets around the circuit no one will ever vote for you again. No one will even ever vote for your school again. So at SIU, the first thing I tell my freshmen when they come here is don't ever lie in a debate. If you're not sure about something, there are ways to say that. But you don't ever lie in a debate because it will come back to haunt you and the rest of our squad. Because I've seen it happen where I've judged teams before and I'm like, oh, this is like, there was a time that we had some trouble with UMKC, University of Missouri, Kansas say They're a fine debate program, don't get me wrong, and I, I love them now. But there was a time back in the day that they had a couple debaters that were sketchy and none of the judges wanted to vote for them. None of their teams because we couldn't trust what they were saying in the round. Unfortunately. Right. Yeah.
0: So you assume you maybe didn't catch the other person, even right. if you caught the first person, the next person, even if you don't catch them in a lie, you assume you just failed and they're still lying. Yes. Yeah. And so we, we didn't trust
1: them as much. And so one of the reasons why you do well in debates is because judges trust you. Right. Um, and, and unfortunately, one of the things that we've seen in presidential debates is there probably hasn't been as much punitive damage there's not as much punishment for for lying i mean uh Trump, most people who watched the debates, you know, Trump versus Clinton, thought that Clinton won those debates. But but, and in, in part, when I wrote columns, it was because Trump was lying all the time, right? Mm-hmm. So he was he was fact-checked. And, and you know, he lied on average of 22 times in the debate, whereas Clinton would lie on average of like four or three or something like that. So, um, so that's one of the things is we have to make sure that people understand truth is what debate is about. And I think that's part of what the moderator should say to the candidates, to the audience to start with. Remember, we're about seeking the truth. This is part of what... What debate is because if we lose that then debate frankly has no purpose if if debate isn't here to try to find the truth then I'm not really sure what it's there for right and so and so that would be my focus that's
0: what I would say to, to keep on so one final question about debate do you see that sort of national level let's say trump effect filtering down to more local races or even to students as they're coming into a debate program are they trying to mimic the that debate style because that's what they've seen.
1: I, I have seen more of that. And and I, I wish that that was not my answer, but I've seen more of that, especially in political debates. But especially in political debates because, the, I mean, right, the, the lesser tier debates don't get fact-checked that much, mm-hmm. you know. And so you can just say a lot because, frankly, politicians will just go and say something today on television that's already been fact-checked. And they're just flat-out lying, and they know it. But they will repeat the same lying. So there's a difference between saying something... Not knowing if it was true or not, and then getting fact-checked, and then going back. So, like, Biden has done that, right? Biden has sure. said some things that just weren't true. He got fact-checked, and then he he improved on it the next time he gave a speech or whatever. But, but, but a lot of politicians don't do that anymore. They just don't care. So, because they've found that the fact-checking doesn't work. Like you said earlier, it's once you get to the final Republican and the final Democrat, most people are just going to vote for their party line, whichever one they like the best. So, what I've found is, what makes the biggest difference is in the, the primary debates, right? Right. When there's mm-hmm. 15 of them, because if your candidate has a bad debate, you're like, I'm really for this one candidate. But if they have a bad debate, you've still got 14 other Republicans to choose from, right? right. But 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 once you get the final one out, you're like, well, we've only got one Republican and I'm a Republican. So that's what I'm voting for. So I do think that the, the fact checking, the telling the truth is super important. I think that we've gone away from it a little bit too much, but I think the moder- we can get it back when the moderator's reminding everyone that this is about a search for the truth. And if they know more, right, if they Know more about candidates' history and they can put the questions properly, I think we can get much better debates. So even some of the Democratic primary debates, we didn't have Republican primaries because Donald Trump didn't have any opponents, but um, but the Democratic primary debates in 20, some were better than others because the, the moderators did a better job of holding their feet to the fire, right, and making sure that they said, well, that's not what you said earlier, et cetera. So I think right. that's important.
0: All right. Well, uh, we are just about out of time, but as this is a podcast about communication, we always like to end with this question about what's something that you're watching, reading, listening to, playing, or whatever that you would like to share with our audience, Well, I mean, uh, I watch, uh, you know, I do, I don't watch too
1: much television, but I watch enough that, you know, so I, you know, Secession is a show I watch. So Mm -hmm. I tend to watch the shows that, 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 you know, do pretty critically well, because I don't know what I'm supposed to watch. So I see what and so, you know, I watch Ted Lasso. I watch Secession. I haven't watched Squid Game yet. I know it's a big deal because everybody in all of my classes is talking about Squid Game. And so I'm like, I should probably watch the Squid Game. So uh, one of the things is to be, I think, an effective teacher. I like a lot of pop culture references, and so I need to make sure, speaking Speaking of Dave Chappelle, my best lines in my old classes used to be about the Chappelle show because everybody right. watched that back in the day. And so I would come in and talk about one of his segments. And so one of the things I try to do is make sure that i have at least have And so when I figured out nobody else, at least none of my students would be watching Ted Lasso, I'm like, well, that's disappointing, but I have to scratch all those from my lecture. So That uh, is disappointing yeah, Ted Lasso. That, that, that is really disappointing. So, uh, so, so I try to watch those kind of shows. So um, I, I watch that um, for reading. I just, I, I read basically my pleasure. Reading is the same as my work reading, which is about the news. I'll read the news for four hours every day. It's just what I do. So I've got I've got about forty websites saved and news sites saved on my computer, um, and I even have them labeled. You know, international, legal websites, uh, conservative, liberal, et cetera, and I'll read them every day. So because it's important for me to stay up on the news to say uh, what's topping. Uh, As far as listening to, I've got terrible taste in music. So I I listen to whatever the radio stations tell me I'm supposed to. I I don't go out and buy music. I've got just the worst taste. So, and I'm the last one to find out about songs. I'm not kidding you. Uh, The little Nas X song that had been number one for a year, uh, Old Town Road, Road, I had never heard. And so like it had been (laughs) on for a year, number one. And I'm like, what is this Old Town Road people are talking about? And so I got, I just, I'll be the first to admit, I've got terrible taste in music. uh, So it's basically whatever the radio plays for me. I'm like, sure, that's good.
0: I find sometimes that I discover a song when it's the remix and that really makes me feel, old. it's like, you know, the song has come out, it's played through and now they're going to go back and remix it. And that's the first time I've heard it. And I'm like, Okay, I'm really out of touch because yeah. I'm not. Yeah, I, I listen.
1: I really appreciate that. Christopher's more. Te- my partner's more technologically superior to me, and so he likes TikTok. I don't ever go on TikTok, but um, he he will tell me what songs are popular because apparently there's songs on TikTok that people do the same dance to or whatever. Sure. I yeah. don't under. I don't. I'm not there. I don't understand it. But he's always like, "Oh, so we'll be at the gym working out." And he's like, "Oh, that's a big song on TikTok right now." <laughs> and so, so like, if he tells me it's popular, I'm like, "Okay, I got to remember that. That was it. That one's a good one."
0: All right. Well, thank you. Um. So. Real quick, as we're wrapping up here, uh, Todd, how can people find you if they want to find out more information about you or they want to follow you? I know that you have a website and some. Yeah, yeah, website.
1: I've got a website. So I. I, I, I I managed to trademark uh, the phrase America's Debate Coach. So uh, you can find me online at americasdebatecoach.com. You can find me on Twitter. If you look for America Debate or America's Debate Coach, you can find me on Facebook at America's Debate Coach. But I I just post about debate stuff on Twitter and Facebook, so you won't find me posting very often. So if there's presidential debates or debate stuff, I'll put stuff there. Uh, But you can find my website. It's got all of my most recent uh, television uh, interviews from the the 2020 campaign. So I've got that. Mm -hmm. I've got a YouTube page, America's Debate Coach. So you can find me there but obviously you can find me here at SIU you can find my email here you know so I'm always around I'm, I'm doing something around here
0: all right and you can uh, reach me if you have questions or comments about this podcast or this specific episode by emailing me at justin.young Todd thank you very much for taking time out of your day this has been a, a great fun interview to do with you Uh,
1: I loved it. This is awesome. Yeah, let's do more of these.
0: Yeah, and uh, thank you for everyone for tuning in, and we'll be back soon with another guest.